Hello and welcome to From Big Pharma to Recovery, the intersection of the opioid epidemic and the criminal legal system. I'm your host, Brian Lovins, and I'm excited to get back to this conversation. In the last episode, we heard about how stigma and labeling people with substance use issues plays a major role in the way we treat people. Today, we're going to talk about MOUD in the criminal legal system, and more specifically, law enforcement programs and correctional programs. So let's get into today's episode, Law Enforcement and Early Justice System Engagement. In this episode, we're going to discuss how MOUD programs work in correctional settings, what are some of the options for MOUD treatment that communities could adopt, how individuals are assessed, how they need to be supported upon discharge, and explore the benefits of connecting MOUD programs with other agencies in their communities. Lastly, we'll share some of the success stories from these MOUD programs. Let's briefly introduce our panel. Scott Allen, a retired East Bridgewater, Massachusetts police officer who now works in the field of pre-arrest, diversion, and deflection as the chief operating officer of Operation to Save Lives. Beth Connolly, director of the Substance Use Prevention and Treatment Initiative of the Pew Charitable Trusts. Pew Charitable Trusts works on bringing evidence-based treatment and reducing barriers to accessing treatment to states and working at the federal level to also increase access to medications for opioid use disorder. Kristen Doss, the Chief Medical Officer for Indiana Department of Correction. She oversees the health care for all incarcerated individuals within the Department of Correction. Brittany Garrett, Director of Law Enforcement Training and Outreach for PARI, the Police Assisted Addiction and Recovery Initiative. Linda Hurley, the President and CEO of Kodak Behavioral Healthcare. Kodak is the largest and only nonprofit treatment of opioid use disorders in Rhode Island. Jan Kemper, a senior legislative attorney for LAPA, the Legislative Analysis and Public Policy Association. LAPA is a nonprofit based out of DC, which focuses on finding solutions to the opioid epidemic, criminal justice reform, medication for addiction treatment, and correctional settings. Dr. Teresa May, Director of Harris County Community Supervision and Corrections Department, also known as Adult Probation. Michael White, Director of Community Programs with Community Medical Services. We have a great panel of experts today. To start, let's take a look at why MOUD programs and correctional settings are so critical. Brittany and Michael, why don't you tell us a little bit about your program? As a police department, we are hoping to increase the safety and security of our community, quality of life of our residents. And so this is just another wing of our mission, a way to help people who are struggling and hopefully get them out of the, the cycle of addiction, which can also affect community crime, being a victim, all of these other things that are all connected back to this. Our mission around the ANGEL program that we adopted from the Gloucester Initiative was very much to redirect people, get them out of the criminal justice system in many ways, help them get back on their feet so that they don't have to stay in this cycle of addiction and criminality or victimization because that was another aspect we kept seeing. You know, in many ways, when people get help, they're breaking the cycle of trauma. It's all connected back to really enriching the quality of life for our residents. We practice a very strong harm reduction approach to the point where we very much try not to kick people out of treatment. And people would turn around and say, well, that's to, for profit, and that's to keep people in. And you see these other OTPs across the country, and let's say somebody fails buprenorphine three times, or they're on too much buprenorphine. And what I would argue is that folks like us that are battling with these things, we come from a long history of trauma. 
and we have a lot of things going on in our head and we're not okay with them all the time. So maybe some people do need these medications. And yes, it's not the safest profile interaction or mixture, but that doesn't mean that somebody should have to live in chaos in their head if there's some way not to. So those types of things, we see people kick people out of treatment for that. Our perception or our understanding of that is you're putting them in a, such a higher degree of overdosing and dying that we refuse to do that. And so we very much try not to kick people out of treatment for that reason. I would venture to say that we're probably the OTP in the country with the strongest harm reduction approach. And it just comes down to humanizing, right? Absolutely. Such a strong point, Michael. We've lived in a zero-tolerance space for so long, I think sometimes we forget that it's quite difficult for people with a substance use issue to go from using daily to never again. Kristen and Teresa, how do you two approach these issues in your communities? Unfortunately, we saw a lot of the same faces in and out. And I was like, this is where the underserved are. Like, you don't have to go anywhere rural. It's, it's right in downtown Indianapolis. And that's where I realized that if we don't get a handle on how we release people back to their communities so we don't keep seeing them over and over again and incorporating substance use disorder in correctional health care, we will never get to true recidivism and keeping people out in the community and functioning and being moms and dads and the wonderful people they can be. So our overall mission for individuals that are, are placed on community supervision really does start with doing a full-blown assessment, including, as I said, we have, we have clinicians on staff that do those. We do a full evidence-based assessment, and our goal is to develop a holistic plan that helps that person have all their needs addressed. And this is one part of that, but it's not the only part. It's integrated into an entire plan for the clients to rehabilitate, get what they need to get their lives on track and resolve their case in the justice system so that they can move on with their lives and have a good life. It definitely sounds like there are some places that are starting to do a better job of assessing people's needs, providing adequate interventions, and supporting long-term change. We're also seeing corrections agencies adopting more than just Narcan. Linda, tell us about how you all have been able to provide a range of medical treatments for opioid use disorder. We were actually the very first to provide all FDA-approved medications for all people that need them, whether they have been maintained in the community and they are then committed to the ACI and then sentenced, we have maintained their medicine but we have also begun maintaining people or inducting and maintaining people when they come in in withdrawal or with a historic or current history of opioid use disorder. In addition, when people have been sentenced and are now being discharged and feel that they need to be stabilized on a medicine, an MOUD, they can ask for that and we provide it. We, we like to have it 90 days in advance so that there can be stabilization before they leave and enter the community because we all know that reentry is a tremendous, tremendous risk for overdose death. The first 48 hours are extremely high, but in Rhode Island in 2015, we saw almost 25% of overdose death happened for individuals who had recently been incarcerated. 
So this population was easy to isolate and was a horrendous number. And we had a remarkably high success rate with the protocol of providing choice, all of the meds, with the clinical oversight input and consultation, and for all people who needed it. That was really exciting. I know that sounds so basic. Just giving the person who is using opioids a choice as to how they would like to receive treatment. But we both know that is rare. Often, options are limited in what communities offer for MOUD. Kristen, can you tell us more about how the Indiana DOC works with people who have opioid use disorders? The way that I explain it to patients is your receptors are constantly craving. They're activated. They're on. They're looking for kind of that next dose of substances. So the more that we can kind of tame those receptors, the easier it will be for you to function and carry on the activities of daily living that you need to do. So you can go to work, take care of your responsibilities, and be productive. So what we encourage is all forms of medication-assisted treatment. So whether that's oral naltrexone, Vivitrol, naltrexone injection, buprenorphine products, whatever that may look like, we really want to meet the patient where they are. And not only that, we want to deliver all levels of treatment. So you can have an inpatient level of care while you're incarcerated with us. You could have an outpatient level. You can have a partial hospitalization type of level, which is in between those two, just because we know that your body is constantly craving and wanting drugs in that in that very early stages of sobriety and recovery and even in active use. Dr. May briefly talked about how important assessments are in getting the ball rolling. Linda, tell us some more about the assessment process. At Commitment, we wanted to do an assessment, and we were trying to figure out, we got all these pads, we had an intern that did all kinds of programming, and come to find out that there was nowhere to do it, and many of the people couldn't utilize that tool. Some people were too intoxicated to utilize the tool, so it didn't work. And what we found worked was that the DOC nurse simply said, do you have a problem with opioids and would you like to get some help? So the first thing that happens is there is patient choice. And then the next piece that happens is that the medications are provided to the individual through a DEA-approved opioid treatment program located right in the intake at the ACI. That's the first two components, is that patient choice for medicine and that we have a pharmacy right there that is providing the medicines so that there's not a 48 or a 78 or, you know, uh, almost a week delay sometimes between communication between the prison and then the vendor or the partner, the opioid treatment program who would then courier that medication back in, and then it would go into the pharmacy and then go back out to the patient. So there's a lot of delays in that. So an essential component of the program at Rhode Island Department of Corrections is the immediacy that can occur, the real-time changes that can occur for individuals. That's awesome. I think some people would wonder why you're giving people treatment for opioid use and intake to your facilities and not waiting until closer to release, but I think that's right. 
People need help and support as they are entering the system, and why should they have cravings and experience serious withdrawal symptoms while incarcerated? Providing MOUD treatment to people at intake has to have significant reductions in institutional infractions. Teresa, you run a large urban probation department. How does Harris County CSED approach this issue? We start with a strong clinical assessment. Individuals before the courts are placing them on supervision. And if we identify individuals that could benefit from medication-assisted treatment, it all starts with what level of care they need. And many times they need residential care. A lot of them will go through detox or a contract provider who will introduce them to medication-assisted treatment. And then many of them are going to the residential facilities. And we actually have physicians on site that work with the clients and offer medication-assisted treatment to them. That's the primary way. So they're inpatient initially, and then they step out into one of our community partners after that. Again, we can see how identifying people who need MOUD services and connecting them to the right resources is important. Kristen, is it just providing MOUD services alone? You've been sentenced to state Department of Correction and you come to us. At that intake period, you will be seen by nursing, you'll be seen by primary care, you'll be seen by mental health, and you'll be seen by our addictions counselors. And at that intake facility, it's determined kind of what level of addiction treatment would be needed. If there's a high acuity and maybe you were using substances at the jail or you came to us even from the street, maybe from parole or something like that, and you're in active use, we definitely will detox and provide detox services at the intake facility and then transfer that person to a level of care where they can receive a higher level of addiction treatment. But either way, at that intake facility, we determine at that point, is this an inpatient kind of addiction case? Is this a partial hospitalization care or is this outpatient and just or groups and just individual check-ins? And then from there, they'll be classified to to a facility that can meet their needs. And again, keeping in mind their physical health needs, their mental health needs, and their addiction recovery needs. We know that this is a whole person and we can't separate out addiction from that entire person they are. And not only that, but like, where do they live in the state? Who are going to be those family and social supports? We know that even during COVID, we had to suspend visitation, but we know that visitation and contact with family and access to family is important as well. So we really try to take all those things into consideration, transfer that person to a facility that can meet their needs the best. And then we don't stop. We continually reevaluate them. So if they're put in maybe an outpatient level of care and we find they've relapsed, then we'll bump them up a level. If that's still not meeting that, we'll take them up to that inpatient level of care. So really, this is just a continual process until the person leaves out our doors. And even then, we want to make sure that they have a connection to medication-assisted treatment. They have an appointment. They know exactly where to go. We've already heard about how important that first 30 days after being released from an incarcerated event is. Scott, I'm hoping that you'll tell us a little bit more about connecting with community resources and how important collaboration is for people's success. So right from the start, we knew that we wanted to reach out to our neighboring towns because what we learned early on from one of our emergency department doctors, Dr. Dan Muse, was the city of Brockton had about 1,000, almost 2,000 overdoses in one county a year in our county. 
But of those 1,000 overdoses, almost 50% of those individuals weren't from the city of Brockton. They were from the neighboring communities, from my community of East Bridgewater, from Whitman, from Hanson. So we knew that because of that information sharing, that it only made sense for us to collaborate together. Because on Brockton, unfortunately, was bearing the brunt of the responses in the city with 900 calls or more you know, on, a, on an annual basis. But with the residents being from our neighboring towns, it only was logical for us to connect with them, to share information, to open up the communication paths so that we could learn about these vulnerable individuals and then how to connect them, how to identify them, how to locate them, and how to connect them to care. Because of that information sharing and collaboration, you're able to connect more people to care. And what, again, I always come back to is when we do that, we're going to connect people to care, we're going to reduce people who are suffering from substance use disorders, behavioral health issues, or at least identify them so that they can get referral to resources. And then we're also reducing our calls for service. Thanks, Scott. Collaboration is definitely key. Our ability to work with treatment centers and understand what resources are available and provide resources for families, that started to change too, that we had more tools, more ability to help people. And I think that a lot of what we were able to do, and I'm seeing this in a lot of communities, is kind of bridging that gap of understanding where people are coming from, meeting them where they are, and really getting close to seeing each other as human beings on both sides. And we had a really awesome kind of training early on where we partnered with one of our local treatment centers, The Healing Place, and worked with them kind of on a recovery training, get the mindset of what addiction does to the body, to the brain, what it does when we're interacting with people who are struggling, but also interacting with people who have had difficult events with law enforcement. Most of the time, you know, they're scared to talk to us. They want to run from us, even if they haven't done anything wrong, like kind of really understanding what people are going through when we show up and we're they're saying, hey, I want to help you. States really have to maintain a comprehensive treatment system. So keeping treatment out of silos, making sure that all the support systems are around. Because we know that today it might be opioids and fentanyl, but tomorrow it could be cocaine and it could be another manufactured drug that we're just not aware of yet. So having a great supportive treatment system that's open to everybody that is easily accessible by everybody is key because if we can get people at least into the system, even if there aren't medications, if they enter the system with an opioid use disorder, they'll start to be connected with medications and then connected with a treatment system. We need to make sure that there's supports around them. So are there housing supports? Are there insurance and other medical types of supports? People with opioid use disorder and substance use disorder often have physical health care needs. States really need to think about how are they addressing the whole person and not just siloing off their substance use disorder and treating that aside from everything else. There's great success in full integration of care. Support and linkage to care is crucial in order for individuals to have success upon release. There really needs to be a strong discharge planning component with anyone who's leaving an incarcerated event. But it sounds like for people with opioid use disorders, it can be life or death. Learning that that linkage to care has to be a continuous evolving plan that has continuous follow-up and check-ins because we know that individuals who suffer from substance use disorder, they're going to have regressions. And recognizing then those regressions are not failures, but they're part of the process. And again, when those regressions happen, 
to help reconnect that person to the linkage to care and then that continual follow-up. LAPA has a Medication for Addiction Treatment and Correctional Settings Model Act, and I'm going to shamelessly plug it because I truly believe it lays out a lot of what correctional settings should do in order to make their treatment as responsive and effective as possible. It goes from the ground up, getting your correctional setting staff involved, making sure you have a program that immediately assesses people when they come in, following up after they leave. And I think that's where a lot of the ball is dropped. You see all these wonderful programs where state and local communities have started medication for addiction treatments in correctional settings, and they're doing so much to help them. And then when the person leaves the correctional setting, they don't have that support. And support is huge. And that's in the most ideal setting. And that's in correctional settings. I think support is a huge component of having someone be able to recover from or manage their substance use disorder. It's a lot easier for someone to be law abiding when they leave correctional settings and they have access to continue medication. They have their medications, they're set up with an appointment to see a healthcare practitioner who is on the same page as their healthcare practitioner when they were in the correctional setting. It's wonderful for someone to be productive and law abiding. I mean, that's how society works. However, we cannot ask that of people leaving correctional setting with a substance use disorder if we are not giving them the tools to do so. And I think policy and lawmaking and legislators have to be living that reality. And I see that more and more, you know, language that requires that when you leave a correctional setting that they have follow-up appointments. I know opioid overdoses are still rising across the country, but we have made a lot of inroads to addressing opioid misuse. Can you tell us about some of the successes you all have seen? One of the things that we did through our initiative was we identified the high-risk substance use mental health disorder vulnerable populations. And then we came up with a specialized initiative to focus on those super utilizers, if you will, the behavioral health system, and to hear some of the not only anecdotal stories, but the qualitative and quantitative data that shows that more of those individuals are staying connected to care for longer periods of time. I believe most recently we have had almost 100% of the individuals who have been released from the ACI have continued care in the community when they had been maintained in the community prior to their incarceration. The total is 78%. It may have increased. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at stuff that's months old right now, but the total is 78% of individuals who have gotten medication-assisted treatment or medication for opioid use disorder in the prison have followed through in the community. We want to see it get higher. We want 100% across the board. And that's what we're working on now. That's extremely strong number. And I think the last point here is that even if what lowers, the longer somebody is in care in the prison, the higher the chances that they are going to follow through in the community and be safe. So a whole lot of people come in for three days or two days, you know, <laughs> and then they're released. So what we're looking at now and we're excited about is at least getting them two days worth of medicine and making sure that they have the numbers and the places to go when they get in the community because they feel the relief from withdrawal. And very often, this is a wonderful intervention point. 
the lives that have come back to us and said, you know, you saved me that day, or you connected me to the resources and I've been in recovery for this long. I relapsed, but I knew I could come and ask for help again. And I got back into recovery. Those are the success stories that make it keep continuing. So we really measure success on our ability to help people get where they need to go and to open the door and be able to build that community trust. Unfortunately, sometimes the criminal legal system is where people have their first exposure to treatment. While not the ideal place to receive MOUD, there is still a need for treatment to be available through the criminal legal system, isn't there? I thought that was a really interesting question. Because it isn't, I mean, we know it's not the optimal place, but the reality is it is the place that so many of Americans receive their first help with their substance use disorder. And so, I mean, ideally it wouldn't be in a correctional setting. It would be inpatient and outpatient treatment, a a combination of both, medication for addiction treatment outside of it, therapy, cognitive therapy, behavioral therapy, that would be great. But that's not the reality. The reality is many of them are going to receive their treatment in a correctional setting. And the best thing we can do is make treatment within those settings as responsive and as immediate as we can. Thank you for joining us. And for more information, visit the Opioid Response Network MOUD and Corrections page, which we'll link in the description of this episode. And while you're there, check out the other resources available, submit a request for your own technical assistance, And don't forget to check back for our next episode, Providing Treatment in a Criminal Legal System.